0: everyone, this is Regina. So glad you could join us today. We want you to know that we record live on Clubhouse every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's get into our discussion today.
1: Girl, thank you so much for this opportunity again. We pray that you will uh, give us wisdom and knowledge as we speak about these topics and that the things we say say will be from you, will be your truth. And we pray that the people listening will gain uh, great knowledge, and not only that, but be able to use it in witnessing and in glorifying your name in our community and in our nation and in our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.
0: Today's topic is we're in Chapter 2. Who led the dogs out? I like the quote that you start out with in your second chapter. It's from Denzel Washington. It says, with so many things coming back in style, I can't wait until morals, respect, and intelligence become a trend again. And that's a quote from Denzel Washington. So uh, I'm going to read a couple portions from... Kevin's book, and then we're going to get into discussion. Back in the day, Who Let the Dogs Out was a very popular song. Even to this day, the song plays in various venues. And for me, this has a personal and cultural poignant meaning. On the personal side of Who Let the Dogs Out reminds me of a time when I owned an Akita dog. Her name was Sparkle. She was an incredible specimen and a stunningly beautiful beast, in quotation marks. The reason why I call her a beast is, while she was wonderful and loving to any human she met, she was a literal killer for all other dogs she came into contact with. She had to be leased or she would harm any other dogs in the vicinity. One day, she was unleashed, jumped over my backyard fence, and went hunting for other dogs. Unfortunately, she found a neighbor's dog running free and she pounced, killing the dog instantly. When an awesome force is unleashed, it can have terrible and profound consequences. The resulting carnage can sometimes be incalculable. I have no doubt that every one of my neighbors who saw and heard the brief encounter my dog had with the other dog still lives with the unforgettable horror about the encounter that day, including myself. Who Let the Dogs Out still rings in my ears but not for its catchy tune and hip melody. It rings because it brings back memories of my dog Sparkle, my beautiful beast, wreaking havoc when she was unleashed. Racism and white supremacy are awesome, sinister forces that have long been unleashed. They are not figments of imagination. They have proven to possess extraordinary powers that kill, kill, steal, and destroy. Millions of people have been killed, Trillions of dollars have been stolen from economies and entire civilizations have been squandered and destroyed due to unleashing of racism and white supremacy. How did we arrive at a historical point whereby ancient evils like racism and supremacy can be brought forth and unleashed? Is there such a thing as unleashing evil that pre-existed? Certainly. When new distinctions are brought forth, previously unknown or unthinkable possibilities can be instantly created. This can generate context and possibilities for action that accelerate and instantiate social-cultural changes. In essence, words matter. I do think it's important to read this next section about words matter, and then we're going to get into this discussion about the power of words. So new possibilities of thought and actions are created via linguistic distinctions, created words. Remember, God framed our world by just speaking it into existence. Similarly, we can frame new concepts, ideas, actions, and perspectives through our words. This is not trivial. Human beings use linguistic distinctions to create, change, and differentiate the world with new possibilities for actions this awesome human capacity has led to tremendous innovations and positive change but there have also been distinctions that were created and when unleashed brought forth a world bearing significant negative changes metaphorically reflecting on the situation with my dog when something is leashed it is tethered held back and restrained and from that point can be controlled. Conversely, the act of unleashing unlocks and removes constraints, allowing what was previously unleashed to freely roam uncontrolled. This applies to all domains. It is true for our physical world, i.e. my dog being unleashed, our thoughts, unleashing the mind to embrace unlimited free thinking and new possibilities, and language, Language empowers people to make due distinctions that then provide a world of new possibilities and actions. So let's start there. Uh, We'll go to Kevin, Lonnie, and Neil. Your thoughts on what it means to unleash the power of words.
2: Yeah, so so this is a a basic uh, human capacity And so when we create new words, like even wokeism is a creative word just over the past several years. When we create new words, then we have to be responsible for the uh, potential consequences of those words as well, or the uh, phraseology or the philosophy. So all of of these created uh, distinctions will fall into either words directly, philosophies, or you know, new paradigms—they're all created in the same way. And essentially, what happens is you have people who have uh, some level of notoriety, and when those people who are who are respected and known bring forth a new word, a new distinction, a new you know type of philosophy, the others tend, who who respect that person will tend to then repeat the word, phraseology, philosophy, whatever. And then you began to get a groundswell of a new uh, distinction, a new created order, a new way to maneuver and to act and to be. And this is exactly what happened with the inculcation, the instantiation, if you will, of white supremacy and racism in America. Now, the reason why I say that, and no doubt we had supremacy from the fall of man in the garden of Eden. It, we, it's, it's, a, it's a malady of the heart it happens where people just don't like people because they're from a different tribe. They're from a different ethnicity. Tribalism certainly has been with us from the beginning of time. And then when you look at slavery, slavery was was in full swing when this particular uh, person created a distinction of white supremacy and racism. So but but we have to understand that slavery was an economic opportunistic thing. It wasn't um, scientifically justified in any way. It, 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 and the people that were practicing supremacy over others via slavery were doing it based on cultural, economic, uh, you know, type type of things, types of traditions. So what's interesting about what we, who we talk about, Charles Darwin in the book, is that we have the prominence of a worldwide figure who, um, who then instantiates white supremacy for the first time in human history. Did people practice supremacy over others? Yes, I'm not arguing that. But we didn't have a distinction of white supremacy until Darwin brought it into existence, and part of the way he brings it into existence is with his, you know, scientific, you know, he's he's well respected worldwide. So this is what he said. He says, okay. "Look, yeah, okay, I, okay. I'm going." Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I just I don't want us to get into the scientific piece yet. That's okay, going to be okay. next week. Right now, we're gonna we're gonna break down kind of just the power of words. And how we've seen that, you know, okay, affected. Okay. You got to
2: stop me. got to throttle me. You're right. <laughs> I can go and go and go. All right. Thank Do you, you
0: want to land your plane? I'll I I land you. the
2: plane. I'll, I'll get these other brothers who got this incredible wisdom uh, who's with us. Come on, let, let, let them get okay. up.
0: Lonnie, share with us.
3: Sure. Thank you. It, uh, yeah, he was, he was going there. But I was taking copious notes. So. <laughs> we we know when uh, Kevin goes into the zone. Um, but what came to mind for me as Kevin was speaking is uh, uh, he, he spoke of the power of words and what's written. And, and what occurred to me is the creator of all who, where we all come from, the creator of all that we see here, the universe, and everything that's beyond that we don't know about. Out of all the ways he chose to reveal himself to us, he chose words, the written word. Words have power, as as Kevin so eloquently stated. Um, And hence, what we have is uh, what I affectionately or unaffectionately call the anti-God agenda is they would use words perverted to their own. Um, goals and agendas
2: yeah.
3: and perverting of words, the words. So, I, I am, you know, you guys all know that I, I get excited talking about the, the merits of the book, but um, what's so crystal clear is when you can see the outline of when evil stepped in, which is what Kevin is speaking of, and began to pervert words to drive an agenda that would be unleashed on the world. And um, for those who have only a casual understanding of history, um, do not know how these things took place because it didn't just come out of thin air. There was an agenda. So something good by the, the differentiation of ethnicities and so forth for identification purposes in the world that was in turn perverted. And we have what we have today. Amen.
1: So uh, I don't want to add, to, there's not much to add, but I'll just say, I'll give a couple of examples of how words are so powerful. The, uh, the left is really good at that. They'll create a word or they'll take a word and they'll co-opt it. A good example is the word conservative. The word conservative w- never meant what it means today. It used to mean the people who wanted to conserve the forest and conserve um, uh, basically what we call environmentalists today so uh we the the people who uh, want freedom and liberty were called classical liberals we want freedom right we were liberal about those things uh yet the left decided that they wanted to co opt the word liberal and they wanted to put on us foist upon us the word conservative which was something that everybody hated people hated those environmentalists at the time so um they kind of took everything and they turned it around and they started calling us conservatives rather than what we are, which is classical liberals. And they took the word liberal because, hey, of course they're liberal. But in the reality is they're not really liberal and we're not really conservative. We are the ones who want freedom. So that's one example. The second example is red states and blue states. Uh, back when Ronald Reagan was running for president, you will, if you go back and you look at it, you will see he had a blue wave. He won all the all the entire country except for one state, I think, with a blue wave because back then... The conservatives or the Republicans were considered blue states because we were not red, red being associated with communism. But again, the media around the late 80s decided they didn't like the fact that they were targeted with the red name. And so they changed it so that they became the blue and we became the red. So you can see how these things happen and how they happen. But it's all, again, the media trying to take the words. And then also another one would be when they try to make fun of people, you know, extremists Right-wing extremists, they create these words, right? Conspiracy theories, another one, you know, uh, the CIA came up with that word. Anytime somebody got uh, too close to the truth, they would just say, oh, they're just a conspiracy theorist, right? Now, this doesn't mean that there are people who have crazy conspiracy ideas, but this is the way that they target and isolate and mock and ridicule um, truth.
2: Can I say one more thing to that? Uh, Neil, made some, both, both guys made some excellent point. But to Neil's point, just recently, we see now they're trying to fashion a new order around conservatives and around MAGA Republicans. That, that, that was never a distinction, but it was a created one just in the past few weeks. MAGA Republicans, semi-fascists, fascists. And so now they're trying to create a caricature using words and tie it around the neck of those who are dissenting from, you know, who are dissenters from, you know, their party, which would be the leftist progressive democrat party. And so we see how words are being used to create straw men, caricatures, de- demonize um and these words are made up out of nothing. How do you how do you now say uh, ultra MAGA, MAGA Republican, uh, and that really means something. And then you say, "Oh, what it means is fascism." Uh, Where do you get that from? <laughs> it's just, it's just. So I hope we're all seeing how we play into this. And if you look at some of the latest, uh, you know, over the past several years, the, the the terms, the names of the bills that are being passed, uh, you know, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which did nothing against inflation. It was strictly for green, green energy. And they admit it. They said, look, we passed it, but it didn't, you know, it's not going to have an impact on inflation. So uh, so they use these words because during, uh, you know, these times now where you have political seasons, they can also say, look, you voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. So you're against reducing inflation. So these words actually do have meaning. They can take on a new meaning by nefarious people. Uh, who would unleash them for, for harmful things, and, and we see a lot of that almost daily
1: now. Yeah, another one is the Christian nationalism, right? You're going to hear that a lot, and they're going to use that to mean that, oh, we're like the Nazi nationalism. Exactly. Right?
0: Explain how we got Christian nationalism, Neil.
1: Well, uh, any time a Christian wants to get involved politically or wants to bring righteous and moral ideas into into the uh, into our legislation, they call it Christian nationalism, right? And they're, oh, these Christian nationalists. Well, the, I mean, it's such an easy idea to refute. Well, you know, if you take that, you'll realize that our entire founding fathers, the Declaration of Independence and everything was founded on, if you will, Christian ideas of morality because the judeo-christian principles so they would be christian nationals by this definition and here's why i can say that you see because the only it's only the judeo-christian bible that says all men are created equal i've traveled around the world as most of you know i grew up in africa uh, sudan yemen ethiopia jamaica and, and my parents are from india and i can tell you and, and i've studied all the religions i teach apologetics i've studied all the religions um and, you know, islam hinduism buddhism uh, shintoism go down the line right and i can tell you about it but you'll notice that none of them say that all men are created equal except for the christian bible so the god of hinduism the three million gods of hinduism don't allah doesn't uh the buddhism is actually an atheist religion so there's no god there you can go to bahaism and a bunch of other religions and none of the pre-christian religions or none of the christians the ancient antiquated religions ever show that all men are created equal unless they borrowed it from Christian Christianity. So if you don't want Christian national nationalism, then you lose inalienable rights. You lose the fact that all men are created equal. Good luck with that.
0: Wow. Okay. So we, we covered a whole span of things, but let's look at um, how... When you guys were talking, one of the things I thought about is we see that for us during this time, media is what really controls how we get information and it is through media. And it has been media that has crafted perceptions in our culture. This is one of the reasons like you can, I lived in Vietnam for five years and that was only recently. wasn't, it It wasn't a long time ago. And, um, you can see the culture of the people is much different because of how their media restricts or controls the information that is put out. You can go to different countries, and that's one of the reasons they talk about the West and westernized culture is because our media, so not just news, but television shows, commercials, we, they put out the agenda right? So um, some of you might be old enough to remember black and white televisions, (laughs) right? (laughs) We might be able to remember black and white televisions. So what was the thing that everyone gathered around? I even remember people talking about how they used to gather around the radio, right? And the dramatization shows on radio were the thing that people gathered together to listen to the news, to listen to different, uh, broadcast and stories that came on because media let everyone know what was acceptable, what was going on. And there was a time when we believed everything that media said. Now there are always those who didn't and thank God for those because, you know, we, we, sometimes we call them tinfoil hats and things like that, but not so the case because we realize that everything that media tells us now is not true. But there was a time when media set the stage for what was acceptable, you know, when the dishwasher came out and when the cars, you know, cars started to become popular, you would see them on television, right? Leave it to Beaver, Andy, the Griffith show, right? All those shows that kind of crafted what it was like to live in a home. Most of us are people of color here on the stage, maybe listening in replays. It might be different, but remember the Cosby show. That set this kind of, wow, that Black families could look like this. And so media has always, and we say that a picture is worth a thousand words. So not only has just the word itself, but images are now crafting and have always crafted the way we view things. Pictures of Jesus, of always white blue eyes, right? And that just, it can't be possible where he grew up. But that kind of crafted and that gave power. That gave power by perception. And so we can see how media how words have changed and crafted our environment sometimes positive sometimes negative and negative pictures and images can can do some powerful work example when the news media decided to air the right, the way that blacks are being treated in protests remember when the fire hoses were turned on and dogs were set on. It changed a nation when they could actually see what human beings were being faced with because of the color of their skin. And that changed civil rights. And not that civil rights protests weren't happening, they were, but it was just not getting out there in the way that uh, it wasn't spreading as much as when it started to become on television. And so words are very, very powerful in the way that they craft our ideas of a culture and society. And societies that have their media restricted have um, different beliefs about culture, about what is right and what is wrong. And so what I want to do is um, open up the floor For Shirley, Yolanda, and Glenda, I'm going to invite you up to speak if you have some questions or thoughts on the power of words in what we're discussing today. So if you want to come up and speak, great. Uh, Kevin, Lonnie, or Neil, you have anything else you want us to keep going on how we've seen the power of words affect our environment?
3: Uh, Regina, um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with... um, Dr Alvita King uh, about those times and and I remember I was a youngster, but I remember the uh, the video um, the footage of uh, those being attacked by the dogs and you know those uh it, it's etched in, in in my in my mind, and I remember mentioning to me that she said that her uncle Dr. Martin luther King jr um, they understood the power of imagery as well. And that those historic marches that we remember that were televised when they were attacked, that was strategic on behalf of Dr. King, and his um, associates, those valiant men and women who endured um, the dogs and the fire hoses and the the batons and so forth. And um, so that though they paid a price, they knew that imagery would show America the depth and breadth of the evil of, uh, of racism and bigotry. And um, it did have a resounding effect, uh, not only throughout America, but throughout the world. And so their, through their sacrifice, uh, change was brought. So it really speaks to um, when the truth is made clear people's hearts tend to change. And, and I, I found that, especially as it relates to the uh, the issue uh, of abortion, I found that most people um, are not really pro-abortion. Um, when you talk to them specifically about what is done, you'll find, and they, and they surprise themselves and say, well, I'm not for all that. But what tends to happen is if it's not in their backyard or something directly affecting them immediately, um, they don't tend to want to get involved. But those who stand up and and, and, and uh, endure the slings and arrows that come when you stand up and speak truth can bring about much change. And uh, so I think that's what we're doing as it relates to um, what Kevin has knitted together in, in this book is showing us um, when we take a stand and we do speak truth, the slings and arrows may come, um, but once we understand that truth, um, I think it will resonate in the hearts and minds of um, the average person in this nation, if not the world. Excellent.
2: I have something to add to that. I think your your uh, observation about and, and you bringing in the abortion issue is really critical and current. It's a current issue. OK, so we had Lila Rose on Dr. Phil, um, what, a week or two ago, about 10 days ago, maybe. And 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 uh, she confirmed that based on ultrasounds that all scientists have access to now, they didn't have it when Ro Who's Lila was, Rose was uh,
0: just in case. Oh, okay. Don't so
2: Lila Rose is a pro-life, uh, activist, uh, and she's the, she started live action. Um, she is well known for standing up for life. Um, and so Dr. Phil invited her on the show because of the, uh, Overturning of the Roe v. Wade, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision, and uh, she was she was confirming with him what scientists know now know because of you know the machinery that we now have they didn't have when 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 Roe was voted on uh, you know the abortion uh, issue. So so she confirmed that all scientists agree that life begins at conception because they can actually pinpoint that there's separate DNA. It's a scientific fact. And he says, no, 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 uh, that is uh, pre-life, that is a fetus. And he tried to to assert that, you know, using words again, that that is something subhuman still. It is not a separate life yet. It is not a life form. It is not life. It is a fetus. It is uh, pre-life. It is some kind of, uh, you know, a status in between. And, um, and so he, so you see the use of words because if he can characterize it that way and people believe his assertion that way, then they will say, yeah, see, so we're not doing any harm. Uh, you know, it's, it's not really a life yet and all of that. Dr. Phil said he's a doctor. He knows on the other hand, He understands that if people come to understand that life begins at conception, and it is a scientific fact, it's not debatable anymore because of the machinery and the equipment that we have. We know if people come to believe that, then they will be more on the pro-life side and against and start to really even see more of a wave against the pro-abort side. So these people in these powerful positions understand how to use language to present or to pose it their point of view and and change hearts and minds with it because that's where our our whole context begins in language and if we could kind of keep in control and manipulate language to the extent that we always get our point of view uh, coming out on top or our perspective readily, more readily accepted, uh, then, you know, that's what we'll do. And we see it in politics. We see it in doctors. We see it all over now. But I think that's a, a wonderful observation of what's happened recently with trying to use and manipulate words so they don't really carry the power of what they, of what's real or what it really is intended to do.
0: For that. Alfred and Tracy, thanks for joining us today. And so we are talking about from Kevin's book, Woked Up. We are in chapter two and we're reading on Who Let the Dogs Out. And basically we're talking about the power of words. And um, acknowledging that media has set the atmosphere for the way that we communicate. And even the printed word. So for in the beginning, when, let's just talk about the Bible, okay? So we know that the Bible was written in Hebrew and um, that we had uh, in the New Testament age. We had a lot of uh, Greek scholars. Uh, the, The language of communication was Rome at the time so greek was spoken but so was hebrew because of the israel people and many other people spoke hebrew because that's how you did trade that's how you moved across the world were there many other languages yes when we look at our old testament written in hebrew there are words there but when it gets translated we find now that um Words have been substituted. Words that we didn't understand because we didn't know Hebrew. And so you're you're reading a concept. And then if you go back now and you study it through the Hebrew, you realize that there is a different meaning or a depth of meaning that comes out that was totally missing, which can affect the way that you... Think about a relationship with God or with Elohim, however you you address the Creator of the universe. So, I think that printed words are just as powerful as the spoken words that we may hear when we speak to one another. We hear over the radio, and then television brings its own level of wordplay through pictures videos and images that set this foundation for how we perceive what is going on and what is acceptable. And to the extent that with movies or even with real life, we may see a video capture of a certain event and have a perspective about we feel like that's all that there is to the story, and then when the whole story comes out, we're like, oh, now you could understand how that part played out. And I, I'm not just speaking about, um, you know, uh, don't just go to to police brutality. It's I'm not just speaking about that. That in any place you can come into a movie mid. You know midstream, and not understand what's going on, then you have to go back and watch the whole thing, right, and so we can get snapshots of things that have been given to us that have been cut up, like some of the bills that have been passed by our government, saying, "Oh we're this bill is entitled to do this," but then you they never tell you about the three hundred and fifty seven other <laughs> pieces of legislation that they tagged onto to that. All you hear is the main thing, like one issue that they want you to focus on, and whoever supported or opposed that, never realizing that there are 357 other laws that may have been the reason why people were supporting or opposing the bill. And so clearly understanding the information that has been given to us is important. It's very important. Because as we begin to look at how racism and white supremacy have influenced our communities, influenced our feelings about each other in such a way that there is such animosity now between races over words. Words are now defining whether or not I will accept you or I will not accept you. Words are defining and that whether you're going to be my neighbor or going to be my friend or if I'm going to work with you. I mean, it's amazing what words are doing now to our community and our culture. And and I know that Kevin wants to get into Darwinism and and all of that. We want to save that till uh, till next week when we talk about the power of the science, science, science (laughs) and scientific agenda. Because we could talk about COVID and vaccination. Yeah, Neil will love that part too. (laughs) We can talk about all that next week. But we just want to kind of lay some foundation about what words have done between the races, between societies. So I close my mic and I open it up for anyone else to give comments. I'm going to invite others who have come into the room. If you have a thought that you'd like to share about race and the power of words. um, Please feel free.
2: Yeah. So when you um, here's here's the interesting thing about words. Um, So all of those with dissenting point of views, dissenting, if you're not a leftist, progressive, ideological figure today, you're automatically being castigated as a white supremacist, even though your color just doesn't align with that. So now they're creating a distinction of white supremacy. Some people are. And they're overlaying it on to mean that anybody that that is conservative or is a dissenting voice from leftist progressivism. And so even to the extent that I have been called a white supremacist by a family member. And, um, you know, we see how now these words are uh being used as a um, pejorative and um in in order to characterize or caricature people um a particular way and um and it's all happening at words it makes no sense it's all nonsense in the sense if you know how, how can you you know how can a, a dyed in the wool black man whose brother from the hood be called a white supremacist is just kind of crazy but we're making allowances for that because we understand that the culture has shifted and, it's, and it's, it really is embracing um, distinctions that really don't make sense, but they're, they're allowing classification and characterization of people in a particular way. And so therefore, we're allowing it to continue and for it to stand. And so that's another example of what's happening right now with with how we're using the words to uh, create new possibilities. Thank you, Regina. This is Lonnie. Um,
3: I would add to what Kevin has stated that. um, So if we're going to be defined as uh, though we're not melanin challenged as a white supremacist, uh, then we in turn must point the picture of who the true culprits of. Uh, culprits of white supremacy are. And, and I and believe Kevin has done that a supreme job of that um, in this book and anyone that has not gotten a copy of the book that's listening in today, uh, please do uh, reach out and get your hands on a copy because it lays down the history and, and points to who the true culprits are. So those that would call us white supremacists because they have a a uh, contrary view to the status quo, um, we're not in line with the very individuals that uh, they identify as being um, pro-black, for lack of a better term. And so, the true culprits are out there, and all the the dots or the breadcrumbs, if you will, lead back to Charles Darwin and Karl Marx. And anyone that has a modicum understanding of history um, should know that those individuals in particular Karl Marx and um and the links to socialism and communism and every fascist regime regime, um what those regimes in turn did to those of us with the darker paint job and uh, carrying out um the evils of those particular uh world views philosophically and politically that's
0: a, something I've always been Thinking about and it'd be great to hear um, people's understanding. What does it mean to be a white supremacist? Because I feel like what I used to think about what a white supremacist was is not the same thing that's being explained now. In that, back when I was growing up, a white supremacist was generally only a white person who, not just any white person, but it was a group of people who believed that only white, Caucasian, so you, and you had to be European Caucasian, right? Because you, you could be Italian, you could be German, you could be, and that's not what they were talking about. Right, that's not what they were talking about when they were talking about white supremacy, at all. So now, then, okay, let me stick with then. So then, the white supremacist was the white supremacist was the person who um, was white. There was nothing mixed in, and that meant no Italian, no German. No Russian, no nothing. Like, it's just white. And basically, I think, in America, someone correct me on history if I'm wrong, that this is... Now, we're not talking about Nazi and Hitler because that was really about an ethnicity cleansing as opposed to this white... This was about skin color and pureness of blood. But now white supremacy seems to be something different. And so those people back then, when they were white supremacists, they just believed that you, that anybody else did not own this country. I remember them talking about, you know, all you black people should go back to Africa. And I'm sitting here saying, do you know that Native American Indians had this land before you? So how is it that Somehow now this is your country, and everybody else should leave. And I remember, if you're, you remember when, um, maybe it was the '90s when we really had to start addressing the Latino population. The span so signs were now in Spanish, and they were having if you speak Spanish, press two, you know, Espanol, and and so and then I remember hearing people complain like, oh. You know, this is America. If you come to America, you should speak English, you know. And there was this thing, you know, because we were making accommodations for another language and culture entering into our society. But now white supremacy is is something different, something that seems so maniacal, like you're not really clear what it means to be a white supremacist anymore, not that I'm trying to be one, you know, but I mean, <laughs> no. go ahead, well, Neil.
1: Well, ahead. <clears throat> you know, Regina, white supremacist is anyone who doesn't agree with the left. Right? That's all it is. It doesn't matter what you agree on or disagree on. If you're, if you're not for socialists, you're a white supremacist. If you're not uh, for critical race theory or Marxism, you're a white supremacist. Because it's, as Kevin mentioned, it's just a name calling. We've created this name and we're going to apply it to people. The, uh, in the past, a white supremacist was someone who thought that whites were superior. Uh, today, a white supremacist is someone who believes everyone is equal, right? <laughs> if you believe everyone is equal and nobody should have a special preference, you're a white supremacist. And that's because the left have taken those words and created the meaning, the new meaning for it. Uh, you know, it's like the word phobic. If you were homophobic, normally it would mean you're afraid of homosexuals, right? But now homophobic just means that you disagree with homosexuality. Uh, it's just a new created word. And the left is very good at creating these words and, um, and adapting them to their purposes. And then the problem is that because they have the media, they've had the media till now, they can now force it upon us. And of course now you see uh, even dictionaries are changing the meaning of words. Uh, look at the word for woman. You know, it used to mean you're biologically a woman. Uh, now it doesn't mean anything in fact even the supreme court justice has no idea what a woman is but it used to mean something it used to have a definition
0: wow wow comments or thoughts thank you for joining us those of you who are in the vip section daphne or laura do you have anything you want to say
4: Uh, I'm just listening, uh, Minister Regina, because this is is interesting and I'm learning. So I'm just listening for now. Thank you.
0: Hello to
4: everyone that's in the room. Hi. Um, I am listening, too. I'm out in the grocery. So I was pinged into the room. It's very interesting. So I would like to hear a little more about what you all are talking about. I just got on a few minutes ago.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, okay. So let me reset just a little bit for a few of the people who just came in. <clears throat> we are we are in chapter two of Kevin's book, Woke Up, and the title for this particular room is called "Who Lets the Dogs Out," and that's actually the name of chapter two in the book. So uh, Kevin shares the story of how he has he had a dog named Sparkle who loved humans but did not like other dogs. And so one day Sparkle got out and she killed another dog. And we began to, and so the idea of whenever he hears the song now, Who Lets the Dogs Out? he always thinks about what happened when he let his very powerful, beautiful dog, who was great with humans, but did not like other dogs, how something very tragic and horrible happened because the dog got off leash. And so now we are kind of talking about the power of words and how words have now been weaponized. But in a way, words were always weaponized. When we think about, let's go back to Adam and Eve. When the serpent spoke to Eve, he said, did God say? (laughs) You know, And from that moment, we have seen how words have shaped a culture, have shaped the actions of people. We can look all through the Old Testament and see how words change things. Now, we know that we are all created in the image and likeness of of God. And so, therefore, we have the power to create with our words, just as he did. And he's given that to us. Well, what have we done with that? And so as we move through history now, we were talking about how media, before people used to gather around the newspaper, right? The printed article, news mail was so important. Uh, That's how uh, cities and states and outposts were connected. It was the mailman, right? it It was the rider on the horse bringing the letters from wherever. then we went to newspaper printing, then we went to radio, then we went to television, and now we have internet, and so this power of whoever controls the media controls the messaging that comes out and we talked about it a very significant event that we probably are all old enough to remember. When we saw the fire hoses, or when our parents saw, it depends on how old you were, when the fire hoses were released on blacks as they were protesting, and, and German shepherds were released on those people, and that was first publicized. When the war happened and they saw the Hiroshima bomb. When we saw the two twin towers fall in New York. Even now with covid and what was being put out about that, about vaccinations, about being vaccinated or not vaccinated, we have allowed words to so, have become so powerful that they are now being weaponized. And in particular, we are talking about racism and we're talking about white supremacy. And so we've been sharing our thoughts about how um, that has been transforming in our lives. And next week, we're going to get into how the scientific world, because that's where Darwin dominated, where that actually um, began to change the way that race was viewed in humanity once science began to make its own statements. And an example of that is now we're having, now, just only now, is science agreeing that life begins at conception. Why? Because they can see it, right? We, they can see it through all the different machinery that they have. They can test the DNA. There are two different DNAs now in the woman's body, her and, and that child. And so now <clears throat> we're having scientific proof that life begins at conception, well, when Roe v. Wade happened, we didn't really have that. So it was kind of debatable. Whose word are you going to believe? And, well, the woman, it's my body. I also think what's playing an interesting piece in, in defining words is the def- definition of a woman. How <laughs> how, how, are you going to change the definition of a woman? But media is doing that. The people that control the media are doing that. And so I'm so um cautious about us even using the word left because that's a word, leftist, liberal. That is a word that we've applied to people. And so really what is a leftist? And what is a, a right? What is a now it's a right wing, right? You're left wing or right wing, which implies you're fanatical. And so we've taken words and sculpted our community and sculpted divisions we have created walls and environments and cities out of our words and they have only done but to separate so in these last few minutes I want us to talk about how do we unify you know how are we going to use words now to unify can we undo the things that words have already created can you hear me Stephanie yes, Daphne, go ahead Okay, I'm I'm in Walmart. If I get
4: cut off, I believe what just like what you just said. If if we we are either gonna go left or we're gonna go right, and for those of us who want to go right, we bond together, stick together. And those who go left, that's what happens. Eventually, the if things are gonna turn again, and we're we're going to outnumber somebody's going to be left behind somebody's going to gain strength and then they're going to outpower the other the left or the right and i think we just need to stick to where we are uh and stand strong and then that's how things are going to change we're either going to accept it or we're not going to accept it and i would never accept certain things uh, and that's just it. I just take a stand on it. And so, what I'm getting out of this is just like you said you, if you you support something, you're going to go to the left side. If you don't support it, you're going to the right side. But what we have to be mindful of is that we're, it's just like when you're voting, you're just drawing attention and drawing certain people to your side. But once those people cross over to your side, do you totally support those people? No. I mean, you just like you just said. Um, yes, it used to be white supremacy was totally European, totally white, and that's it. So now we're using words, uh, kind of, to build up our defense uh, uh, mechanism or our defensive uh, perimeter like in the military, I'm going to pull you over to my side. And that's it. And once I pull you over to my side, then there's going to be another battle because I'm not, I'm not going to defend you or protect you or totally allow you in. It's the strongest of the people who convince those to come over to their side, who's going to win. That's just how I see it. I'm sorry. That's it. (laughs) I rest my mic
2: yeah that's great, Daphne. Thank you for uh, uh, providing uh, you know additional context and perspective here i you know I think that you know, and we say it you know all the time that um, knowledge is power, so I think if we can just be conscious of how uh, we create um worlds, how we create movements, how we create philosophies, how we do that through words. Um, And how others also create and frame a context via words, whether they're true or not, that for for a lot of people, it doesn't matter. They want to provide or to shape a certain way of thinking, and they use created words and new distinctions, and and they add to existing distinctions in order to uh, reframe a context. And so, if we can just be aware of what they're doing and how they're doing it, then we could be that more the wiser to not, uh, you know, fall for the opiodope, so to speak, uh, when it's something that really doesn't resonate strongly with us. It, you know, in other words, we know that this is a manipulation. We know that these people are using these words to try to you know, get, you know, manipulate my heartstrings or to get me to act a particular way or or protest in a particular way or gin up the base, whatever they're going to do. Um, if we can just understand what's really going on, and that's the power of what we're talking about today. Uh, and the power of this room today is to really help us to recognize what's happening. It's happening in language first, and then the action precedes that and if we can just be aware of how it's happening in language then we could be all the wiser to help our friends family community members and others to not get sucked into a cultural narrative that really is destructive not only to the communities that we 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 want to support but also to all of those that are a part of it so uh, i think that's the real power power of this 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 talk today
0: thank you kevin um we had a guest join the platform. Did you have something you want to say or just hear better? No,
5: hear. Um, thank you for inviting me up. Um, I just want to just flag something that I've read in the book, which for me kind of really, it really homes into a, a great a define for me in terms of where we're at. And it says here, race was an invented linguistic distinction, but it has become the genesis of some of the most historical negative outcomes that we still are trying to work through to this very day. And I never, ever thought about the word race. And I mean, you've got a lovely define here on, on on page 20 um never really thought about the word race but how when I think about it I actually have this hostility with attached to that word. And as you're speaking about media, is that what I've been exposed to all this all this time through my sort of 50 odd years is when I see the word race, I associate it to hostility Because, as you've said here, the negative outcomes. But I just want to say thank you because it's actually made me think about how I, how I, as a black person, actually define that word for myself. So thank you um, to Kevin and the other authors.
0: Thank you, Regina, Minister Jackie. If I could put you on the spot, what's the difference you find in the UK? And America, is there a difference um, in how race is used or weaponized that you can see from your vantage point in the UK? Right, for us here in the UK,
5: it is it's undercover, but it's still very much there. Um, I can say, as a child, I too was told, "Oh, you stink! You smell! You're a monkey!" Eat a banana, go back to where you come from. So we don't hear that so blatantly. And so I'm going back like 52 years, you would hear that very much spoken out in this country. You don't hear that now. But the racism is there in the controlling forces. You know, in governments, you see very few um, people of a different minority You know, um, it it was surprising because uh, I'll put it as this, that they kind of scanned some of the Queen's household and I couldn't even see anybody that was of a different colour. They were all of the same colour. And that's the kind of message that is very much in your face. The financial industry, again, controlled by a certain race. So it's there, but it's just not so blatantly expressed as as I would say hope
0: that helps it does thank you and and I want to play devil's advocate so (laughs) I'm saying this purposely now I'm playing devil's advocate on purpose so why does why do we have um oh what did they call that term when in 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 employment when you had to uh, hire a few black people or a few people of color. What's that? What's that term, guys?
2: Affirmative action.
0: Yes. Yes. OK, let's let's look at affirmative action. Is that that has to do with race, doesn't it? And so you may say, well, OK, we look at the, the financial market and there aren't any people of color. So that's wrong. So you need to hire people of of color. But what if the people of color were not able to get the education because they didn't have access for some systemic reasons that may be happening in their community and made it harder for them to get an education, to graduate, to go on to graduate school and then get the opportunity to enlisted to work so they could get the experience so that they could make the high-paying jobs. You know, so it's kind of like, well, yeah, we need to see more people of color, but is it putting in affirmative action or is it more about making sure that the public school system is better or that children have access to a better education or how about stability in homes? Uh, We've talked like I think in our first broadcast about how Back in the fifties and sixties, it was two-parent households. Black communities had a high percentage of two-parent household and literacy rates. But once that started to become destabilized, things started to shatter. And so, setting affirmative action rules is that really helping equality? Is it what it? What is that? And so, I, Neil. I'm going to call on you first. Rephrase <laughs>
1: uh, rephrase the, rephrase the uh, statement in the form of a question.
0: <laughs> Neil, tell us about affirmative action and is that really valuable to people of color?
1: Well, I my uh you know the, there is a, this thing hey we need affirmative action because we need to equalize the consequence of racism and um the years of uh, the fact that uh, Blacks and certain indigenous peoples have been, have been isolated and pushed down and oppressed. So I can see the, the reasoning for it, but it turns out that whenever the government does something, it does a very lousy job of it. So what happens with affirmative action, rather than helping one group of people, it ends up allowing them to lower their standards in many cases. And, in, and it, can, uh, it can actually hurt people. Uh, for one, for one example, let's say if you say, "Hey, if you, we have to have affirmative action." So everybody who comes to this university, ha- you have to uh, represent a, the demographic of the actual uh, nation in this university. Well, the problem is if you've got schools that are not functioning well, and you've got black students who are coming out with a literacy rate of 17%, and then you say, "No, you've got to give these people entry into these colleges." then you're doing two things. One, you're actually hurting these kids because they come to college and they just can't cope and they give up. When in actual fact, had they gone into a a different college, a college that was prepared to help them, bring them up to the level they were, then maybe after that, they could have gone to a a Yale or a Harvard. Or you're going to dumb down the requirements for Yale and Harvard, uh, and then you dumb down the requirements for everybody. So nobody's really helped by this because the government has this one-size-fits-all kind of idea to fix things. Um, and then uh, everybody gets angry, everybody gets hurt, nobody gets help, and a lot of money gets wasted. So, so that's one of the issues of uh, affirmative action. And the second part of affirmative action is you, it is immoral to apply affirmative action to private corporations. I believe as much as I hate the fact that somebody would want to discriminate me, I can assure you I do not want to go to a restaurant or work at a company where people don't like me. Um, I always, uh, there's a story I tell years ago when I first came to the States, I was working for a company named AMD, and this is back in the 80s, and um, my cousin used to work there too. And I remember having this conversation, I said, wow, we're just working for a paycheck. The only way to get rich in America is if you've got to start your own company. At which point my cousin said, yeah, but there's a problem there. You see, the only people who will get funding <coughs> to start a new company is this white guy with a big red nose who drinks beer with all the other venture capitalists? <clears throat> and I said, well, well, that shouldn't be a problem. We just need to find one of these white guys, give him a percentage of our company and let him be the CEO and we'll do all the work behind it and then we'll get our company going. Now, while I was saying that, my nephew was sitting on the floor uh, listening to us and he, you know, he was about 14 or 15. He looked at me and he says, well, that's not right. And I looked at him. I said, "I don't care if it's right or not. If that's the only way we're going to get ahead, let us do that. And then eventually, we'll have people of our ilk, people who look like us, doing the funding because they've been able to make money in the system. And now you can fund it." Now, as some of you know, I'm Indian. I'm Indian of ethnicity. Well, here we are, 15 years later, and, and of course, a few years later, my my cousin and I about I think it was about. Uh, 12 years later, my cousin and I did start our own company. We raised $15 million from venture capitalists. But guess what? When we went to the venture capitalists, almost every venture capitalist firm was populated by Indians. The Indians had done exactly that. They had gone in, brought the white guy in for the front face, and then they'd used the system to get to the top, and now they were controlling the system. And that's, I think, the way to do it. On the other hand, had we gone to the government and says, hey, you've got to let Indians in to the game, uh, I don't know where we'd be, but we certainly wouldn't be where we have some of the wealthiest people in Silicon Valley or India.
3: Oh, uh, Regina, can I Thank chime you. in here?
1: Yes, of course. You
3: Neil, know, you've got me jumping up and down over here screaming, so uh, saying amen. I'm in the amen corner. Um, as it relates to uh, my parents, um, my father's 91. My mom will be 90 in about a month, month and a half, and um, there was no affirmative action Program or anything for them when they first started out looking to purchase a home in Los Angeles. So, to make a long story short, my parents were the first blacks to move onto their street um, in the Los Angeles area back in the late 1950s. How did they do that? They found a way, they found a real estate agent and broker who was sympathetic to their cause. And she made sure that the property that she owned on that particular street, she sold it to my parents. So my parents were the first blacks to move on that street. Well, guess what happened after that? Other blacks moved on the street. And by the time my parents left that particular community and moved to another community where they did, in essence, the same thing, that community had become a majority black Americans or specifically Christian Americans find a way and there's that what i call um the god quotient Um, if you are a christian there are no barriers that you can't overcome because you are a christian and you know what the word of god says about us being a christian are there obstacles that you have to deal with certainly i was in silicon valley um i'm a little bit older than neil (laughs) not a whole lot but and um, off, I often was the only one, but I never let it deter me because I know there is a God that I serve and he's the final arbiter in the affairs of man. And as you stated, Neil, if you're waiting around for government to make it right for you, you got a long wait and it's seldom going to be right. And it's going to cost you a lot of money because that's just tend to be how government operates. I'm not anti-government. I just understand so acutely that. You can make a way if you find a way. The home my parents moved to in West Los Angeles, which is where their dream home was, was right next door to a couple who were the first family to move into the community that weren't white, and they found a way. And I think I mentioned this on previous uh, broadcasts that we've had. And he was a garbage man, and she was a stay-at-home mom, but he was a very shrewd businessman. And he found a way to purchase that dream home for his wife and that's the truer picture of us as Americans of, of whatever ethnicity, but it's specifically those of us, what I like to say is have the darker paint job, black Americans, we find a way and we always have. Civil rights movement was not driven by government. It was driven by black folk and a whole lot of other people as well within the church who believed in God and found
1: a way. Yeah, let me jump in right there. The, uh, the Woolworths, remember the Woolworths counterstrike. There was no law. Woolworths capitulated because they realized that 10% of all their profits came from black people. They couldn't afford, their stocks could not afford a 10% drop in income, Amen. right? So it had nothing to do with government. The government came in much later. In fact, uh, even seat belts. A lot of companies brought in seat belts and safety standards long before the government did. In fact, when the government steps in, it usually makes things worse because then they just have to meet the regulation. When the government came in and said, you know, your bumpers have to withstand five miles of, uh, of um, an accident without any damage, a lot of car companies were at 25 miles of, uh, uh, before the bumper received any damage. And they said, well, that's a government standard. And they backed down their safety standard. So if you let the, uh, the, the public sector, or sorry, the private sector do their job, they actually exceed demands because they want to reach out. They want to make sure you're happy. They want to make sure you're coming back. Uh, and they want to make sure that you are healthy because that way they'll have repeat customers. But if the government does it, they don't care.
0: (laughs) That's good. We went on affirmative action because of something that, uh, Jack, you prompted in me. Um, We did move away from the power of words. Well, I don't really think we moved too far off topic, Um, but we are discussing the power of words, and we are going to um, wrap it up. Uh, Is there anyone in our audience that would like to share? Just raise your hand, and we'll bring you up, we'd love to hear from you as we are discussing the power of words, how racism, the word white supremacy, how that has been crafted and affected our community. And it was powerful what Jackie was saying about race, uh, which Kevin wrote in his book. Um, It has now taken on almost like you don't wanna answer. Sometimes if I'm filling out an application or if I'm applying for something, I almost don't want to say race because I don't know if that will help or hurt me. And it seems like that should never have to have be a question. It seems like it it, it shouldn't matter, right? But when did we start asking about that, Neil? Do you know when we started doing population status? Because I remember ethnicity and race, they weren't always on applications,
1: I believe it was, um, well, it came about because the government required uh, companies and people to to explain how they were meeting the affirmative action. So I don't know what year it was, but it started with all that. So they were like, okay, let's see if people are really obeying us. Anytime the government asks you to do something, it comes with a lot of paperwork, and that was one of the first things they did. So I don't know what year that was, but it, it started, and it started slow and then expanded and expanded, you know every time somebody comes to office they're like well i need to justify my my existence as a legislator so let me pass new laws and that's how most of us ended up
0: we went over a little bit but that is certainly okay um we're just going to do a round robin so we'll start with kevin lani and neil just kind of giving some closing thoughts on today's discussion anything that you have as a takeaway that you want to speak on. So we'll start with uh, Kevin first.
2: All right. So my main takeaway is, uh, man, this was, uh, this was a very important and very interesting uh, discussion. So I hope that uh, all of the participants actually, you know, got a lot out of it. We did cover a lot um, and, and went into uh, detail about how language affects uh, the way that we live, the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with the world. And so if we can just kind of keep that in mind that just because people present caricatures and frame the world a particular way, doesn't mean that it's true. As a matter of fact, we need to have a healthy suspicion about what they're trying to do uh, when they create these new distinctions and new ways to sort of envision what they would want us to envision. So I'm just hoping that we'd be wise as uh, serpents and uh, gentlest doves. As we go forward um, to protect, uh, you know, ourselves and our family members and our communities from being swept into uh, something just because it's it sounds right, um, and so I, uh, I hope that this was useful for that purpose. Regina, can I go now?
0: <laughs> yes, Lonnie. Okay, <laughs> you don't have to ask permission.
3: <laughs> All righty. This may be a little off topic, but I wanted to mention only because um, uh, Jackie spoke up earlier, and she's from. Uh, um, from Great Britain, is um, I recently learned that uh, you know, all things have to do with, with speaking about words and then also perception of those words. And I was not aware, but um, someone pointed this out to me, that, uh, uh, that England had two black queens. Um, one was uh, Queen Charlotte, and the other was uh, Queen Philippa. And I was not aware of that. So the perceptions with the demise of Queen Elizabeth, obviously, is on everyone's mind right now that within the history, there were two uh, black queens. So I just wanted to point that out as we're talking about uh, words and the perception of those words. I found that interesting.
2: Well,
0: wow. Neil.
1: Oh, I think I've said enough.
0: <laughs> okay. Neil thinks he's said enough. All right, everyone. Um, Again, thank you so much for joining us today as we had a discussion. And if you popped in and you popped in late, be sure to. This is the end of our discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to hear your voice, so please consider joining us live on Clubhouse every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, have a great day.